Welcome to Changing Lenses. I'm on a personal journey to explore how we can make our world more inclusive and compassionate and our lives more fulfilling and sustainable. Along the way, I've been meeting some amazing Canadians doing amazing things. By listening to their stories and experiences, I hope we will change our lens to see from a more inclusive perspective and be inspired to build a better world. I'm your host, Rosie Young, and I invite you to join me as we change our lenses together. Because changing our lens changes what we see. And when we see differently, we can live differently. Hi, and thanks for joining us on this episode of Changing Lenses. Today is part two of our talk with Dr. Raymond Abdulrahman, a consulting and clinical psychologist and public speaker with a special focus on diversity and inclusion. He combines his significant clinical skills with his lived experience as both a person of color and an immigrant to help people better understand microaggressions, privilege, representation, and culture. You can listen to his full biography in part one of the podcast or check out the show notes for this episode and every episode at changinglenses.ca slash podcast. Before we rejoin Rehman, I want to remind you of our commitment to safety and trust at Changing Lenses. Some of what we discuss may be sensitive or challenging for us to say and for you to hear, but I really want us to have an open and genuine conversation. One goal of Changing Lenses is to be a safe and brave space for these conversations and for us to be our real selves. So I welcome you, our listener, and you, Raymond, into the safe space. And I invite you to call me out if I say anything inappropriate or use the wrong terms. Now let's pick up from part one of I Am Canadian with Dr. Rehman Abdulrahman, which ended with his comments about Canada's multiculturalism. In Canada, we, we claim to be multicultural, and we are not. We are multi-ethnic. We've always had that diversity, but we are certainly not multicultural. We are unicultural. We will look down our noses at the Americans and say, oh, they're a melting pot. We are a mosaic. We are not a mosaic. I assure you that. Uh, you speak to any person of color who has to put aside their needs and their wants and their interests of the clothing they wear, they wear the holidays they try to get taken off at work or at schools and they will tell you this is not a multicultural country that is rhetoric we are fed that is a false truth oh my goodness okay uh, i have to take a breath after hearing you say this now can can you unpack that a bit more what do you mean then for people who are like what are you talking about not 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 only is canada not a racist country but we're absolutely a you know multicultural country. So what do you mean when you say we're not multicultural? Well, I'd say that we have the presence of different ethnicities. We say we promote multiculturalism, but we don't. When we do look at multiculturalism, it, it's usually in a very tokenistic kind of way. It's patronizing. You know, we will accept the wearing of quote unquote costumes. 
on a certain day. But even if you were to wear those costumes at certain events and festivals, we'll still see you in the light of a stereotype. Um, try to integrate that culture of those communities, of those Canadian communities into everyday practice. Like, what if we all had Chinese New Year off, every single Canadian? What if we all had Rosh Hashanah, not, not Hanukkah, that's not the primary holiday of the Jewish community. We all had Rosh Hashanah off. What if we all had Diwali off? What if we all had Eid off? Mm. Now, now, now people's eyebrows are raised. Well, what would that do to the economy? <laughs> People would say, oh, how will we survive? Yes. Well, okay, well, oh, okay, let's say this then. Let's say you're right, you're right. The econ- I don't agree. The economy actually thrives better when we are, number one, working less. Number two, encouraging holidays that, uh, that encourage more spending, which mm. is not a bad thing mm. across communities. That's, so it's, it's not a thing. But let's say if that was the case, let's say if it was going to negatively impact. So let's pick one holiday. Which holiday should we pick? Chinese New Year? No. <laughs> Diwali? No, no, no. Rosh Hashanah? Nope, not that either. Not Eid, nope, not that, not in National <laughs> Indigenous People Day. God forbid we choose National Indigenous Peoples Day as the one holiday we celebrate. No, we choose to make the biggest deal out of Christmas. Mm. And one has to wonder why are we, well, no, no, it's not a religious holiday. You don't understand. It's secular. It's secular, people will say. Yes, but, but you know, there's a lot of people who celebrate all those other holidays in a secular way. So why would we choose a holiday with a religious origin that's now secular that comes from a Christian tradition or a Eurocentric tradition versus one from anywhere else. So I'm glad you brought that up because I have been, I have been thinking about that from a religious privilege perspective as well. Mm-hmm. And not, it would be extremely religious privileging of me to ask you to represent all Muslims and speak for the Muslim community. So I'm purposely saying that out loud so that I don't do that. Yeah. Uh, but at least from your perspective, do you feel like there's not only like racism against you, but a religious discrimination against you? Like, are they separate things? Oh, absolutely. Or are they- absolutely. There is a religious discrimination. Well, I mean, there's this concept of intersectionality, right? We wear these multiple, we have these intersecting identities. And the more of these identities we have, the more marginalized we become, right? So what I'm going to say might sound controversial to some people, but a gay white man will get much further, although there is that identity that would identify them as marginalized, will still get much further than a gay black woman. Mm. Because that gay black woman has a lot more intersecting identities and they're tied to more marginalization. So a person of color who might be Christian, well, you know, we talked about how that certainly gets you closer to the fire but you still can't warm your hands by it. You won't be at that inner circle because you still got one piece that's holding you back. Now, when it comes to religious discrimination, me personally, yes, I face it all the time. I think Muslim women face it the most because uh, Muslim women who particularly wear the headscarf. I mean, we've got a uh, province here in Canada that uh, is banning the wearing of religious symbols, including the headscarf, the face covering for those Muslim women who choose to wear it. And ironically are now you know, saying that we should be uh, all covering our, yeah, our mouths with that. That's okay. We can have a face mask for COVID, but not for any other reason. <laughs> That's but, right. But yes, it does exist. Research actually demonstrates that the two most targeted groups 
of or communities in Canada that face discrimination are Muslims and Indigenous people. Polls in the United States have found that younger demographics and even communities of color, including uh, Black people and Latino people, high percentages of those, the lowest rates I think were 27 or 36 percent of Latino and Black people have negative views of Muslims or have Islamophobic. Really? Yeah. And I think it and I think it goes to that perspective that I talked about is that we are more likely to accept people if they accept our way of life. You know, but it still doesn't get you completely into the inner circle. But certainly religion and some religions more than others are certainly an intersecting identity that marginalizes people further. Hmm. And I wonder how much of that I mean, not specifically races or, or religions that are discriminatory against Muslims, but even just historically, like going back to colonists and how they were able to control people that they colonize. Like, I'm just thinking about dividing and conquering, right? Mm-hmm. So, so when we talk about privilege as well, like I'm, I'm a person of color. I identify as a Chinese person. I have experienced discrimination in my life, but I also have Chinese guilt, mm-hmm. like the equivalent of white guilt but as a Chinese person, because I can see that I'm a lot better off than darker-skinned people of color, Mm -hmm. including people who are from South Asian countries, people who are Muslim. Um, And as a Christian, so I identify as a Christian, and I just looked this up today because I didn't know myself, but the latest survey I found was from 2018, where it said, I think like 55% of Canadians identified as Christian. Mm -hmm. So that is, that's still a majority. And then they, you know, talk about discrimination and they lumped in basically every, not everybody, but they, they had Christians at 55%. They had no religious affiliation at 29%. And then they lumped in a whole bunch of religions under other as 40%. And among them were Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, Jews, and so forth. Like, so Yeah, where are the other? The yeah, other the other, right? And it's like, yeah. it's not a small number. There's, there's millions of people in that yeah. other category. I'm like, when do they, when do they start even something as small as that? Like, to me, that, that's an example of a microaggression, right? Yeah. Just the fact that they get lumped into other or, you know, going, going back to your point about why can't we have um, holidays, like paid stat holidays to celebrate a whole bunch of other religious events or special days in religion or festivals that belong to a certain culture. And in my mind, I'm hearing the snide comments and jokes that throughout my, you know, 20 years of working of, oh, I wish I was a Jew and I'd have all these paid days off. And, yeah. you know, as if people who get those days off are slacking off somehow, right. or like we went to the beach right. and there are all these fun times paid by the government yeah. that, you know, Christians don't get. And not that even most people who get those Christian holidays are even celebrating or, or considering themselves Christian, yeah. but there's this, this weird stigma. And I don't really know why people should see it that way. It's like, oh, we can't give anything extra to those people yeah. because somehow they're getting an advantage. Yeah. And yet it's like. Yeah. If, if people want to try this out, here's an experiment. As you move closer to the holidays or if there's ever an opportunity that brings up holidays, just lie and say you don't celebrate Christmas and watch the reaction you get. People are like, what? And, <laughs> and you're like, well, I, I'm not a Christian. Well, neither am I. I mean, maybe my family was, but. Why not Christmas? Hmm. And it's like, well, it's not a religious or cultural holiday of mine, but it's Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like that's that's the answer you get. But it's Christmas. 
but what about the kids? <laughs> not like they need the, you know, they need Christmas to survive. But but what about what do you do with the children? What do you do on those days off? Oh. While I work, or we hang out and watch TV and eat food. So just like us, just like us. Yes, just like you. Oh my gosh! You don't even put up a Christmas tree. I mean, these are these are comments from really educated individuals, and I and again, it speaks to what I would call the white norm. You know, and Rosie, you may identify as Christian, and, and I I mean no disrespect, but mm-hmm. if you were to if you were to test those limits and say you didn't practice Christianity, you might see that you might face a little bit more of those barriers. So I think having that. I think because Christianity is tied to a Eurocentric or a white perspective, it makes people feel more comfortable if you were to adopt those values. And the research actually shows too, like organizations and people tend to hire people with more white sounding names, considerably so. So and again, that's, that's where culture, and to me, religion is not just about religion, but it's, it's about culture that goes with that. And I think once you have those differences and you make that clear, you don't fit in. I'll give you a really good example. And the thing is, sometimes sometimes people are really well-meaning. These microaggressions that people have, they're well-meaning. They're not trying to offend people. But I think it speaks to the lack of information or the knowledge in, in general society about who people are or people's understanding of what a Canadian experience is. So one of my students, this is some time ago when I was practicing at at a hospital, so I was supervising this one student for quite some time. And this student is a a really fantastic person, had traveled the world, had traveled to Tanzania where I was born, uh, traveled to the Middle East, was familiar with my religious and cultural background. So we had a lot in common and we had often discussed about travel and things like that. Now, when the student was actually finishing, they brought me a gift. And the gift was actually a bottle of wine. Mm. Uh, and the bottle of wine is called Rorschach. So it's like a psychology reference there. Oh, yes. And yeah. they said, I wanted to bring you this gift. And I said, well, I really appreciate the gift, but I'm a Muslim and I don't drink. And they said, oh, but I thought that you did because you seemed c- kind of cool. Oh, no. So... <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> yeah, cool Muslim, not, you know, those non-drinking, not cool Muslims. Right. Like, so somehow I thought you were, so I thought you were okay with it. I thought you must be drinking because you seemed so relaxed or, you know, and I was like, where do I begin with this? It's really well-meaning. And this is a person who is well-traveled and well-educated. And I think very highly of that individual, but it speaks to a lack of awareness or perception on how we how we perceive people from different cultural or religious backgrounds. Yes. You know, that's a really good point too, because I think in the workplace, now I came from a professional services background and one of the things that professional services people love to do is drink Mm -hmm. because we kill ourselves with work and then we'd make ourselves feel it's okay by drinking. Mm -hmm. As a psychologist, you might appreciate that (laughs) because just, you know, we make more clients for you basically. Yeah. You know, I had a good friend who's Muslim and it was not a struggle for him because it didn't bother him, but it was always a thing where like, oh, let's go for a drink. And just no one could seem to remember that he didn't drink, Mm -hmm. even though, you know, it came up multiple times. Like, this is not something that suddenly changed. We just, I was like, oh, oh, right. You don't drink. 
And then another, in a different workplace, another good friend of mine who is Muslim was telling me something I honestly hadn't thought of, just how hard it was for her to find lunch food, like fast food that was halal. Mm. And how it's like, you know, back home, I think she's from Pakistan, it was never a problem because, you know, there were a lot more, a lot of Muslims, so food was generally halal, not the other way around. Yeah. And here, it's like, you couldn't eat McDonald's, you couldn't have KFC or something. Mm-hmm. In Pakistan, she was very used to just going out and grabbing it. But here you couldn't because you were never really sure, even if they said it was halal, <laughs> if it was halal, right? I think, I think it's just another, yeah, another example of when you're in privilege, you just don't have any clue that these are things people have to think about or go through every day. Something as simple as buying a lunch. It's not as easy because the world isn't built for you where you live. Yeah, ultimately, this is about education and empathy. Like there's a true sense of ignorance. People aren't always, you know, there's always rude people. I mean, the the technician who called who was rude and I'm sure was probably having a bad day as well. But, you know, but there there is a sense of ignorance. And are we working, our organizations, are our communities working to educate? Are we working to educate ourselves? And then are we having enough empathy to be able to be the ones who take the initiative to educate instead of waiting to be educated? And that's often the thing is the responsibility falls on the shoulders of, the people who are marginalized to now, can you please tell us how we should address racism as a white community? Well, is that my responsibility or is it your responsibility to take the initiative and learn? And if we meet somewhere in the middle, we can go a long way, but the initiative actually has to start with leadership or people who are of greater privilege. And I, okay, I'm going to go out on a limb as the person from Toronto, Ontario. And I know how everyone outside of Ontario feels about Ontario because I have worked across Canada and I didn't realize that Toronto wasn't the center of the earth until I went to Calgary or those places. So I'm going to ask what could be an ignorant question, but as a brown person, Muslim, living in Winnipeg, do you find a difference geographically? Um, And I know you've traveled as well. So do you find differences in the level of racism and discrimination in different parts of Canada? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. But you want to know the interesting thing is I found the greatest difference between Canada and the United States. And I know we think about the United States as a place of great discrimination, particularly now. And I think anytime you have a greater population, you're going to have a greater population of people who have a particular something or the other, right? So greater, greater population, you have more people who like chocolate in the United States than you do in Canada. And the same way you're going to have more uh, racist in the United States, as you will in Canada. But actually, I faced much more warmth and comfort in some American cities than I have in Canadian cities. And I think it's because they have the discussions down there. Oh. And it makes people more aware. And I don't know that Canadians ha- like to have those discussions. I think, you know, we like to be complacent and we like to blame the United States and say, you know, we're better than them. We don't have. We don't have that problem because we don't talk about it. We do have the problem. You just don't identify it. Yeah. And people of color tend not to want to bring up those topics because they are often silenced when they do. You know, you're being too sensitive. They didn't mean that. Oh, you're playing the race card again. Oh, you know. And so, well, and that's why people kind of just look at each other quietly when racist things happen, when people of color will notice it and they look at each other and you notice it, and that's all you can do. Yeah. And so it's interesting your comment about the states, because 
like, was it even after 9-11 you found you had the experiences of places in the U.S. where there was more warmth and welcome than in Canada? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's this general, like, it's funny, like, I and people in my family have had much more active levels of anger uh, directed at us here in Canada. Wow. Than in the States. I mean, there's always, I mean, don't get me wrong, it's not like I haven't had sure. racist experience in the States, but it's almost like the average person in some cities more than others was more kind. There's times like I, I knew a woman who says, I've never had, a, I've never had uh, somebody open a door for me in Winnipeg. But in D.C., white men open doors for me all the time. I see. So almost like it's an indifference or a coldness. Like maybe the people hide both the negative and the positive. So there, there may not be, there is overt discrimination in Canada, but there's also not overt kindness and warmth towards you. Well, I just think we hold a lot more racist beliefs than we tend to recognize. And they're there, we just don't talk about them. And I think they're coming up now. I think we hide them in our politics. We talk about right wing, you know, conservative. And I'm not saying that all people who are who conservative have racist points of view, but certainly there's a lot of people who have racist points of view who've taken up leadership in the conservative party. Yeah. And unfortunately, it actually, I think it prevents people of color or people who come from religious or ethnic or cultural minorities who have conservative views, fiscally or otherwise, from having that point of view uh, or voting that because it's associated with people who would also vote against them. I'll give you an example. So. I had a woman come to my door who's currently been voted into office here in Winnipeg um, in the province and came to my door a few years ago with her canvassing for a vote and gave me her little pamphlet uh, from the Conservative Party. And, uh, and, and this doesn't mean I have anything specifically against any one particular person, but and I asked me if I would be voting for them and uh, had given me the pamphlet. And I said, actually, no. And they said, why? And I said, well, there's leadership in your party that has made active steps to work against people like me and people in my community. And her response was, oh, can I have my card back then? No. I kid you not. Like, the only response was, don't waste my card, give it back to me. Like, yeah. not any, not even like, tell me more. That's right. Wow. Yeah. That is probably. Okay, I don't know why. I mean, this is funny. We're having a discussion. I invited you on this podcast to talk about inclusion and racism within Canada. And I'm still coming across as shocked about this stuff. <laughs> yeah. Like, why is it surprising me? I have no idea, but it's still, it's horrifying. It really is horrifying. Well, I, I, think, I think there's a couple of things. I think, number one, we tend to ignore what we see. And the experiences are so normalized that they're just a part of our experience and we pass it off. And there's a lot of people who experience racism and discrimination and just don't pay attention to it because there's nothing they can do and it just becomes a part of their experience. Like, well, what are you going to do? It is what it is. And you just become so blunted to it, myself included. And that's where when my kids started to say stuff and I was like, yeah, he's right. Of course, he's going to feel this way. And I've just gotten busy in my work that I've chosen not to do this work. Maybe it's time I use my work to work on this issue. But we but we normalize this. and And then Rosie, I mean, with all due respect, there's also this concept of, you know, you're Chinese, but you, you could possibly pass as part white. Uh, really? Yeah. I, I, you know, like, I mean, I because the sunblock was working for me. Eh? 
Yeah. But, but I mean, skin color can certainly do that. And like, I mean, there's people who say things to me, like, I, I remember a woman on a plane speaking very ill of black people to me and then flirting with me. And I'm like, excuse me, I'm a person of color, right? So like in her mind, black people were the target and somehow I was okay. Or people make comments about, you know, my eyes are a bit lighter than uh, the average person of color. And so they will say, oh, you must have some white in you. And so somehow being partially white or appearing partially white or having a feature that is perceived to be white buys you some privilege. And again, it doesn't get you fully into the circle, but somehow it gets you there. And so I think, quote unquote, the less white you look, the quote unquote, less white you act, the more I think of a target you become. So I've had experiences, but I have privilege as a man. Uh, as I, I'm not a Muslim woman, I don't wear the headscarf or the hijab. So I don't have that, but ask a Muslim woman who wears the hijab. Uh, and I say this to women all the time, I, I'm a non-Muslim woman. I said, if you really want to experience what racism is like in Canada, just wear the hijab for a day. Forget a day, just wear it for an hour and go to the mall. And you will experience what it's like to, to see what racism is like uh, in Canada. You know, I'm sorry. I made a joke about it earlier, and I'm sorry about that. No, no, you don't need to. Well, I mean, that's that's all we can do sometimes. <laughs> is we have to be able to have a sense of humor about it. I mean, that's how we provide it. Uh, well, to, <laughs> thanks. Well, to be honest, I guess I didn't even know how to respond because you, in a way, you touched you touched on a point that goes a couple of ways. Um, first of all, I want to acknowledge Chinese racism, mm-hmm. which is rampant. And by that, I mean racism from Chinese people against others. Um, You could probably find racism in every culture, no matter where you go. Mm -hmm. I think that's just the human condition. Uh, But there's for sure, um, like I've observed skin color gradation scale of racism that um, the lighter your skin is, uh, or sorry, lighter skin people tend to be racist towards darker skin people. Colorism. Yes, yes, sure, colorism. Um, And even within Chinese culture, just as I've heard from South Asian friends, like from India and from Sri Lanka, um, that similar things, like they prefer lighter skin. Like to me, it's it's almost sad legacy of colonialism. Yes. Where for some reason, we all want to be more like white people, even though we're not white people. Yes. But if only our skin could be lighter, we think that's more beautiful for some reason. And there's products and chemicals that make you that way, Absolutely. which is really sad. Well, and surgeries, right? Like in Asia, I mean, there's surgeries to remove the fold and the eyelid for Asian people or to lengthen the nose, right? You get the implants, you know, there's skin bleaching creams, there's light colored contacts and blonde is everybody's favorite color, right? So yep. um, honestly, I fantasized about being white when I was a kid and I had blonde hair. Yeah. That was yeah. my dream to be, you know, the beautiful white person. I don't know why. That is a common fantasy for most people of color. Wow. My kid in playing, like or creating an avatar or whatever, will want to choose blue eyes. I'm like, why would you, you're great as you are. No, no, I want blue eyes. Why blue? Why, why not brown? Why no. is blue the standard? Beautiful yeah. blue eyes. What about beautiful dark eyes? Yeah. You know? Oh. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I support you in making your kid proud of what he looks like. Yeah. So, so okay, so how can we help? Um, so, first of all, acknowledging that as a Chinese person, I think that there's also racism between races out there. Uh, I'm kinda, I touched on this before. Um, like, I know I've had racist thoughts. Um, like, if, if not actually said anything out loud, I've had racist thoughts against black people, against brown people, uh, about the way people talk or dress or act. Like, it's out there. I know that it's out there and it's not right. 
So how can myself and others who are uh, who recognize that there are these wrong things that go on, how can we be more supportive? How can we um, be, be more allies? How can we be more sensitive? How, okay, here's a really crazy question. I put myself out there for anyone else who wants to be an ally. Is it more respectful or less respectful if I try to say your name and I get it wrong? No, try like, to Would say you rather it. I try and get it wrong or? Try it, say it, okay. have the discussion. You know, speak your intent. I think tone is everything. People don't recognize it. It's not the mistake. It's the tone. I understand that the name is not a common name to people. It's not well practiced. And of course, most people are really understanding. I'm not offended by that. And a lot of people are not, you know, offended by those kinds of things. But I think it's ultimately about the tone. It's the ability to feel like it's, it's also the ability for the ally to be able to recognize if they're making a mistake. Right. It's the assumption that they are always right or the perception that they're always right that leads people into getting into trouble. Now, a lot of people who are from a majority culture, a lot of white people, will be so afraid of making a mistake that they won't say anything. Mm-hmm. And when they don't say anything, the presumption is that they are making an assumption. It is always best to recognize that, you know what, I don't know what to say. I'd like to learn. What that does is it, it brings you down to the same level as other people. When you stay quiet or silent about it, it, it makes you look like you're sitting above people. And that may not be your intent. So I would say the biggest thing I'd say at is, is is learn and make learning a big part of your life if you want to be an ally and ask questions and, and state it as such. And if you make a mistake, which you will, as all of us do, I make a lot of those mistakes on a regular basis, even though this is my work, I just state it. It's that sense of humility about it versus a sense of, you know, snobbery that somehow you think you're better than somebody or you feel like you're too good to admit that you made a mistake. And then the second piece I would say is about finding ways to make sure people feel included and not leave the responsibility on those people who are marginalized because they're not going to tell you that it's needed. Because doing it would make them feel like they stick out. We have to first build the road before people start to walk it. And the people who build the road are the people with the materials to build that road. They're the privilege to build that road. So if you carry any privilege, whether it's white privilege or male privilege or cultural privilege, use it uh, to benefit those who don't have it. Yeah. I was thinking about that earlier, too, around how to be inclusive. And I wonder if part of that is to, to ask the questions and not make any assumptions, like really just basic kindness and courtesy. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So, for example, um, you don't drink as a Muslim, but I also know of Muslims who do drink. Mm-hmm. So just because if I find out you're Muslim, I shouldn't assume that you don't drink just because you're a Muslim. Mm-hmm. It would be better, I think, for me to ask like, oh, do, do you drink, Rahman? And, you, and can I offer you something? And you can tell me, no, I don't drink. You know, I'm a Muslim and I choose not to drink. Then, okay, now I know, right? right. And hopefully I remember it too. Uh, but I shouldn't assume one no. way or the other that just because you're a Muslim, you do or don't do something, I think. But I think even acknowledging that I, you can say, look, I know this is what I understand. Is this true for you? Mm. Because sometimes people will go, like, sometimes Muslims or anybody will go along with things because they want to, but sometimes they do it because there's a need to fit in. Right. There's a lot of kids out there who don't want to drink, but do it because if they don't, they won't appear as Western. 
sort of fit in, they just go ahead and do it. So the, what I'm trying to say is that what we think are people's free will and free like choices, the ability to make their own, are not often pure free will. It is often a function of a lot of societal pressure to fit in with what I call the white standard. And we can never really be too sure about why people are making those decisions. So um, we need to make sure that we also recognize or we let people know that we're okay with their decisions regardless of what they are. You know? Yeah. I think that's a really good point too. I'm glad you raised that. And I could see where, because I've heard this to you from allies, um, that they're afraid to do something or even to just try to say someone's name because they're like, they, they feel like they don't know how or what if they do make a mistake. And maybe this is also part of a Canadian culture thing, uh, like, well, better to not do anything. It's almost more polite to not do anything and not say someone's name wrong or not make the wrong assumption than yeah. to try, right? But then that leads to what you noted, which is a lack of conversation and yeah. a lack of progress in Canada around this. Yeah, and it's not, to me, it's not about polite. It's more about what's relatable. It's more relatable if you can screw up and admit to it. Mm. And there's a basic psychological principle that people are generally more likable when they're not 100% perfect. You know? Yeah. And you're generally successful, but you are, you still mess up. You're normal, relatable individual. And I think we need to apply that principle to allyship and uh, our learning is to just acknowledge when we don't know and we made a mistake. And then you incorporate that next time. I don't think we have to expect ourselves not to know. The idea of cross-cultural competence is one of a fluid nature that it's ongoing. We'll never really know everything about everybody all the time. And so it's more about approaching this thing as always working to learn and know. Because some of us won't have that exposure to people, of different kinds of people, or we'll only have exposure to one kind of person. Our true understanding of people and humanity should always be ongoing versus a set point. We're like, well, I've achieved that now. And it seems almost silly if we say it out loud. Yeah, I resonate with that. Because to me, then the true showing care and kindness and consideration to another human being is showing interest, like genuinely wanting to know about the person and learning more about them or understanding them better, which never ends. As you said, people are always changing. Yeah. And it's not then you're trying to learn a culture or read a history. You're just, you're just getting to know someone on a basic human level. Now, here's the one caution I would say. In sometimes working on that, we can exotify people, you know, where we approach diversity or difference like uh, anthropologically, where we just want to kind of always know well, what makes you different. Please tell me. Tell mm -hmm. me about your food. Well, wait a second. <laughs> what makes you think I... I remember once I walked out of my office and uh, I was eating my lunch, talking to the secretary and this psychiatrist walks out and he goes, that smells amazing out here. It smells like Indian food. And then he looked at me, he goes, what'd you bring for lunch? Uh -oh. And I held up my bagel and I said, this bagel, <laughs> right? Was it, um, was it a curry bagel that you just microwaved? It was a raspberry bagel. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and I think sometimes people think that they're being well-meaning and wanting to learn by barraging people with like, oh, I want to understand you and your point of view. But, yeah. but cross-cultural competence is first about identifying your own biases yep. and your own misunderstandings. 
Yeah. And then leaving the door open to understand about the worldview of other people. And then lastly, for having a working relationship. But to not make assumptions in that, because sometimes in our thinking of understanding, quote unquote, different people, we assume that they're different and they're not really. You know, we have to go on this as a case by case basis, but also be careful we're not making people feel so outside the box. So they're like some circus act show. Yeah. Yeah. Well, really, people are different just because people are different, right? Like, yeah. Where I shouldn't assume certain things about you because you're brown, you're another human being. You're obviously going to be different from me, just like I'm going to be different from you. Right. And so I can spend the time, you know, getting to know you as a friend and learn about you as a human being, not you as a brown Muslim person from Winnipeg or wherever. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So. Uh, So, Raymond, you've given us um, just so much amazingness of yourself, your stories and your experiences. I think what uh, something that I really treasure from this conversation is the fact that we're having a conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I appreciate that about your podcast, Different People. I appreciate that about your willingness to come on this podcast and um, be my very second guest. Uh, we're obviously not going to solve the problem um, or be able to say, oh, well, this is how we can be a good ally in just one podcast alone, um, even though I've already taken up an hour of your time. Um, is there, we're going to have all the links uh, in our show notes so that people can find out how to get in touch with you or, you know, certainly if there's any follow-up questions, um, because I can imagine there would be people wondering um, how they can find out more. Um, so we'll have all the links in our show notes about how to get in touch with you. Um, but before we close off, are there any um, parting thoughts or, you know, key messages that you want to give us to take away? You know, just that in working on issues of getting to know different people or working on better inclusion, we have to remember that it's because of the politics and the stress of the current, I think, climate of issues of race and discrimination. It can make people very anxious. And we have to understand that the more we avoid things that make us anxious, the worse it gets. But the more we dive in, the more we get used to making mistakes, the easier all of that becomes. And so what might feel counterintuitive is actually the better thing is to walk into the anxiety and have those difficult discussions because that's how we're going to resolve all of these difficulties is through those anxious but difficult conversations. That is great. Um, thank you so much for those parting thoughts, Dr. Rayman Abdulrahman. Um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to do with my own anxiety of saying your name correctly by <laughs> just saying your name. It's all good. Yeah, thank you for making the effort. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, was I close or should I practice? Yeah, fairly close. Thank you. Uh, okay, okay, fair enough. Um, and, you know, you bring up anxiety, which uh, reminds me that you're a practicing clinical psychologist. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we haven't even had a chance to talk about psychology or mental health, which I wanted to get to, uh, but we've just had such a great conversation about inclusion and diversity, which is your specialty, but not even your main practice. Um, so I think that very clearly you've made great inroads into inclusion and diversity that I forget sometimes you're actually a doctor <laughs> of psychology as well. Thank you. Um, so thank you for the work that you're doing. If people want to find out more about your work, we'll have all the links to your websites. Um, you have a few websites. There's clinicpsychology.com, uh, leadwithdiversity.com, and of course your podcast, differentpeople.ca. They can also find you on LinkedIn. And, you know, um, amongst all the other work that you do as a professor and teacher and a speaker and just so many great things, I really look forward to seeing the amazing work that I know you're going to be doing in this field and your impact on Canada, which I hope will be incredible. Thank you. 
because um, we we so need you and everything that you're doing in Canada, especially. Um, so I just want to thank you for all that you do. And thank you for being a guest on Changing Lenses. You definitely changed my lens today. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us. I hope today's episode helped to change your lens and expand your worldview. If you enjoyed listening, please rate and subscribe to Changing Lenses, available wherever you get your favorite podcast. For more about how I'm changing my lens, please check out my website at changinglenses.ca. You'll also find the show notes and transcripts for each episode, and you can leave comments or questions or send me a message. I would love to hear from you. I'm Rosie Young, inviting you to join me for the next episode of Changing Lenses. Until then, take care.